Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. If you read The Traveler this past week, you learned about how the wildfires in Australia affected that country's national parks received an update on the status of whether the U.S. Supreme Court will allow a natural gas pipeline to cross the Appalachian Trail, and saw questions raised about the state of historic interpretation in the national park system, as well as whether it's really worth providing an annual count of visitors to the national parks. You can find those and other stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's episode, Lynn Riddick introduces us to Mission San Jose, at San Antonio Missions National Historical Park in Texas. It's part one of her four-part series on this intriguing park. And we talk with Mitch Tobin, the director of the Water Desk at the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado, to understand why his organization is underwriting journalism revolving around the Colorado River. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. San Antonio, Texas. There's a lot to see and do. I know because I live here. And whenever I have out-of-town guests, I always take them to the San Antonio Missions National Historical Park. The park actually includes four separate missions— There's a fifth, more famous mission in San Antonio, the Alamo. Although that's owned by the state of Texas, its role is every bit as essential to the complete mission story. All were established by Franciscan missionaries sent by Spain some 300 years ago along a seven-mile stretch of the San Antonio River. The purpose was to spread the Catholic faith among Qualtecan Indians and establish and defend a secure foothold for the Spanish government. The creation of independent farmers and ranchers while preserving their loyalty to the Spanish crown and Catholic faith was the ultimate goal. This mission chain is the most intact and most complete example of Spain's early efforts to colonize in North America. The focal point of each mission is its church, and the churches are beautiful. But the missions were much more than the churches they held. They were active, self-sustaining communities offering hope for a more secure life. But there were trade-offs. I'm Lynn Riddick, and in this series, I'll take you to each of the park's four missions. We'll take a look at what makes the missions so unique, 
the people, how they lived, learned, and worshipped, the food, the water systems, and how local people built the missions literally from the ground up. The relationship between Spain and its Catholic Church with local native people is historically important. That relationship was the genesis of a great blending of cultures from two continents. It was the evolution of the Tejano culture that still thrives in present-day San Antonio. Here, we have a large American-born Hispanic population, widespread Catholicism, and enduring use of the Spanish language. Mission-based farming and ranching evolved into a large agrarian-based society that shaped and defined the area we now know as San Antonio. And all of these things can be traced back to what happened here in the missions. That's what the San Antonio Missions National Historical Park is all about and why it is also a designated UNESCO World Heritage Site, a perfect place to visit. And if you do visit, knowing San Antonio's weather, there's a high probability that you'll either have a very nice day or a very hot day. We'll start with Mission San Jose y San Miguel de Aguayo, better known as Mission San Jose. As you drive south on Mission Road from downtown San Antonio, you pass a golf course, a mechanic shop, a notary and tax office, and modest homes behind chain-link fences. So you're kind of caught off guard when you arrive at Roosevelt Street because you don't expect an historic mission-slash-national historical park to pop up in the middle of all this modern life. But here it is. Turn right onto Roosevelt and a quick left into the parking lot drive. A well-known pizza chain with a red roof will be on your right. Mission San Jose is something else entirely. It's the largest of San Antonio's five missions. It was founded in 1720 along the San Antonio River. It's five miles downstream from the Alamo which is located smack in the middle of downtown San Antonio hustle and bustle. Mission San Jose is grand, imposing 10-foot limestone walls, even higher in some sections, form a large 600-foot-plus square around the property. Inside, long rows of rectangular limestone structures along the walls provided living quarters. There are workshops and a barrel-vaulted granary. You'll see bastions in the corner of the property used in the event of attacks, remnants of lime kilns for the production of lime for mortar, acequias, and wells paint a picture of mission life. At the back of the property is the magnificent Roman-style limestone church, with its bell tower, dome, and religious carvings. The carvings were a storybook of sorts. They told the native people who the most important figures were in the Catholic faith. There is the patron, saint, and namesake of Mission San Jose, St. Joseph, holding the baby Jesus. There's St. Anne, the mother of the Virgin Mary, and St. Francis, who founded the Franciscan Order. Parts of the church are original. Many components were reconstructed under the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s. The rose window with its floral and shell motif carved in the limestone is an outstanding example of Spanish colonial art. 
the mission churches are active Roman Catholic parishes owned and operated by the Archdiocese of San Antonio. Mass is still celebrated at all of the missions, and you can choose from English, Spanish, or a bilingual service. At Mission San Jose, a rousing mariachi mass is celebrated every Sunday at noon. behind the church, you come upon a row of stone and brick arches that once formed the convento. That's where the friars lived. The convento was partially reconstructed in the 19th century. The wooden floors that once separated the upper apartments from the lower offices and storage areas are long since deteriorated, leaving a space that makes a special promenade. When the shadows are right, this becomes a magical spot, perfect for a photo. When Franciscan missionaries arrived, the vast area we now know as Mexico, as well as the American Southwest, including Texas, was considered New Spain. The Franciscans' role in converting native people to Christianity and ensuring their loyalty to a king they would never see were critical to Spain's dominance in the region. To find out more about how these communities were created, populated, and ultimately thrived, I talked with Tom Castanos, park ranger and educational coordinator for the San Antonio Missions National Historical Park. Hi, Tom. Thank you Hi. for talking with me today. My pleasure. Well, I want to start by asking you to describe what this land looked like 300 years ago. Okay. So February the 23rd, 1720, was the founding day for Mission San Jose. So, you know, 19, uh, 2020, this is our 300th anniversary of this site. When those friars came and read aloud this edict that this was going to become a part of the kingdom of Spain, you would have found just a, a, a sea of grass, just a, a grassland as far as the eye could see. It would take a lot of different human factors that changed the South Texas environment to the mesquite shrub and cactus that we have now. It was much more open at that point in time, but it was uh, very, uh, um, very plain. Pardon the pun, plains, very plain. Uh, not a lot of features. The San Antonio River Valley, the drainage that would be the river would be the number one feature of the area and the reason there were people here to begin with, that water, all living things needed. And who were the native people living around here and what was their life like? Yeah, there's a, there's a more than a little bit of, not really debate. So Texas school books, publications for a very long time have referred to these people as Quawaltecan. And there is some debate on how accurate that that name is. Research done much later by anthropologists determined that there were many different languages being spoken in the River Valley. Quawaltecan refers to one specific indigenous language, Quawilteco which there was a, a belief that all of these people spoke, and we now are fairly certain that's not true. What was similar amongst the people were their, their subsistence pattern, how they got their food. And when you live in a semi-arid desert next to, in a river valley, everybody's going to get their food the same way. They're hunters and gatherers. They're not farmers. They couldn't depend on good soil or regular rainfall. If you live here in South Texas, you know what we mean. 
So they seasonally moved up and down the rivers in small bands of 20 to 50 people, uh, just hunting and gathering for everything they needed. So the native indigenous people, is it accurate to refer to them as Indians? Is there a better word? Well, you know, that, that's a, there's a, there's a, a self-identification to that. So there's, there's the mainstream idea that we have moved away from that particular word. In academia, you'll find terms like indigenous peoples, native people, first people. But then specifically, there's a number of the descendant families in this community that trace their lineage all the way back to the mission inhabitants that prefer the term Indian. So it, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that as a case by case basis. I see. Well, what drew the native people to the mission, the Indians to the mission, and how did Spain's priests and friars go about recruiting, for lack of a better word? No, that's exactly what it is. So in the eyes of the Spaniards, the role of this facility is legitimizing a claim that this land had belonged to the Kingdom of Spain um, since the, the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, claiming all of the New World in the name of Spain, although there had never really been a lot of Spanish activity in Texas other than much earlier exploration slash wandering aimlessly like Cabeza de Vaca lost. Um, the interest in Texas came when the fear of a French incursion developed and then an immediate interest in legitimizing that claim and building Spanish facilities took over for the Spanish. When they found places with a good constant water supply that would support a permanent establishment, they, in this time period, invited the natives to participate. It sounds very cordial. The reality of it is the natives could have no way of fully understanding what they were agreeing to because they'd never seen a, a kingdom. They didn't understand royal edict and rule. What they were offered was learning a way to supply themselves with food year-round, kind of an artificial agriculture created by digging irrigation canals or acequias, that's Spanish transplanted technology, and protection and security from other native groups like the Apaches and Comanches that regularly competed for these very limited resources. So in exchange for protection, they gave the kingdom labor. And so were much of the efforts to identify native people to join the mission was that kind of spread through word of mouth among the various tribes? Yes, I, yeah, definitely. And I would make the, 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 just the small correction of rather than tribes, I'd say bands, because they weren't as organized or large or political as a tribe tends to be. They're really just more like large family units. So that's why there's dozens, if not hundreds, of these bands separated along the river valley. But yeah, the, you, you come in contact with a handful you begin this rudimentary communication, even though you don't speak the language, kind of think of a lot of pantomime and pointing and things like that. And as some of the offers that the Spanish made about producing food, growing food, came to fruition, then I think the word spread very rapidly that these people can do the things that they said they can do. They created food where food had never been before, and they bring these strange domesticated animals like chickens and goats and pigs, things that had never existed here before. I think that word of mouth spread very rapidly early on. In what order were the features of the missions developed? For example, did the church come first? Did the walls come first? Did the living quarters come first? And it's curious, was the on-site clergy going off of some master blueprint? Yeah, so Spain created 
colleges in what we would call present-day Mexico now uh, that taught friars how to do this process. It taught them to be administrators. It taught them to be vocational teachers for skill sets like masonry and carpentry. Um, so they had a plan. They had a very distinctive plan about what they were attempting to do. Otherwise, the friars also, I'm sure, felt they had a calling to come up here and spread the gospel. So one led to the other, and a lot of these vocations were taught in this very biblical fashion of kind of like you know, the, 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 the prestige, not prestige, but the, the values of a work ethic and things like that. Now, having said that, the natives had an amazing work ethic. It just wasn't one that the European lifestyle recognized. It wasn't the, the nine to five grind, get up and grind corn. All. They, they kind of moved with the seasons. So I think there's, very, there's a disconnect of thinking that these people didn't have a work ethic the Spanish tried to instill. What the Spanish are really instilling is a European work ethic. So again, you know, what kind of came first? Right, correct. So likely there would be a very, very temporary shelter that the priest likely slept in that doubled as a small prayer facility church. As they gathered together larger groups of natives, then, you know, what would be a collection of little lean-to huts, jacales, uh, would turn next maybe into a food storage barn because as these crops are brought in, they need to store that food. And little by little in those interim seasons between harvest, they improved the homes and the homes took on a structure and those structures began to be walls. You know, so it just little by little, everything kind of just morphs and changes. But it probably starts with the priest's shelter, which doubled as a church. So we're going to go in here. These aren't typically open daily to the general public. They are uh, set up for our school programming. I'm going to get this door open here. What we wanted to do was give the kids an opportunity to compare and contrast what a home would have been like here versus what they have at their own place. Now, this is a three-room apartment. And we don't know why. Most of the rest are two rooms. But this room and the far room put together would be a typical apartment in the walls. And then we've done a, a significant amount of research. Uh, an excellent team of park rangers here um, did a significant amount of research to look at what kind of furnishings would have been available to these people. So in a typical native apartment, we've got bone cups. We've got wooden utensils. What you'll find in here is a decided lack of anything made of metal. Now there is a metal cook pot, there are a few elements. Metal items would often be given as reward for good work or helping people under, other people along in the process. So they would be given metal trinkets or metal tools that were greatly coveted because of their longevity, their ability to be heated up and used over and over again. But it's going to be side by side with things they would have known forever, the mano metate, to grind their corn every morning. That's a, a something that would have happened every day. Um, they're weaving for the first time with cotton and wool because cotton, although it's in a a crop that is from North America did not grow in this region, and sheep, well, they were brought here by Europe. Over in the bedroom, and by the way, they're all bedrooms when it comes nighttime, if you have a big enough family. Uh, 
a series of blankets and hides that would have been spread on the ground for everyone else. Um, the thing that we depict here is that there really aren't a lot of furnishings. And like I said, on, at the offset, that sounds kind of mean-spirited, but these people came from living on the ground in these rock shelters and caves. So I don't know that there was a recognition of, to them that there was any great disconnect. You know, again, maybe a little more crowded, maybe a little more claustrophobic, but they're actually given some things here that probably made them feel like, well, you know, this is a pretty good situation. Let's talk about the benefits of mission life. Okay. There were plenty of benefits. There were some drawbacks. But let's talk about the, the benefits first. Yeah. So first and foremost has to be a constant food supply. Once again, 21st century people, even in difficult situations in the United States, in a first world nation like our own, are rarely very far away from food. Yes, there are issues in our country where people are uh, underfed and they have a difficulty getting to food, but the, the, the average American family throws away more food than many people eat in other parts of the world. We take for granted that when the refrigerator opens and the light comes on, it's not just food, it's more food than we could possibly want. We're so spoiled we argue about brands of white bread, which is all flavorless. You know, it's, it, it's that kind of world we live in. In their world, that ability to have a reserve of food, which only comes through agriculture, uh, was just an alien concept and a, and, and a godsend to people that were used to going through seasons of literal starvation. You know, think about these six and seven year drought periods we go through. And if your life depended on finding game and plants, those would be just the, the hardest times. And then as new people move into the river valley, it's more and more people competing for that same very, very limited food supply. So certainly food, that constant supply of food would have been their number one asset. Protection from other groups, the walls, uh, technology, metal tools over the stone tools they had used previously. I think there's, there's many technological advantages that made their lives, at least on the outset, better. And what did they have to give up? And how do you think they reconciled their beliefs yeah. with, with what they had to surrender. Well, they're giving up their freedom. You know, it's, it's real easy to look at these natives and some stories early on, you know, I grew up in this community and they would often refer to these people as slaves. And that's not technically correct. They're not purchased. They're not sold. They're not a commodity. If we have to draw a European parallel, they're surf farmers. They, they farm the king's land for the king's food, and in return, the king grants them some of that food and to live on that land. So again, they're not free at all. Freedom, this is, we're talking 1720, 1740, 30-plus years before an American Revolution, 50 years before a French Revolution, these ideas of these individual freedoms from a European standpoint, completely unknown. So they're, they are surf farmers, so they give up their freedom. Um, these communities, because they're enclosed, suffer from many of the same diseases through a lack of cleanliness that European cities had suffered for for ages, uh, cholera and dysentery and things like that, particularly hard on a native population that had never encountered these diseases and had virtually no immunity to it. So it, it's it's not a one-way street. It's not just a life is better. It's life is different. You know, I, you and I have lived in a world where we've never had to make a choice like that, likely. 
I don't know your background, but I'm guessing. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, my gut instinct is it's better, but I think you could make an argument it wasn't better either. Surrendering their the spirituality that they had known in their communities. Mm-hmm. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. I would assume the, mo- the most difficult thing to change in a person are their beliefs. You know, for, for any of us that have ever had to try a diet, that's, that's nightmarish, you know, or you move or, you know, heaven forbid you divorced and remarried or, or all the kinds of changes that we typically have in our lives, but we're all capable of them. But then to actually take the core of your beliefs of literally how you think the universe works and asking you to rethink that would have to be the hardest. And I don't know, and this is something we can't probably ever fully know, how well those first generations accepted that. I mean, did they accept it on a cursory level? Yeah, 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 I'll believe whatever you want, just pass out the food kind of thing. But within a generation or two of people born within the mission walls and knowing nothing else... I think that conversion becomes more and more complete. So a question I have is, why were the missions built so uh, close together along the San Antonio River? Sure. And I guess from what I've heard or read, you don't really see a configuration like that much in other parts of the country? No. Everything that the Spanish do is very purpose-built for the environment and the sociopolitical situation. So the example, East Texas missions were timber. Why? You have wood. South Texas missions are built of stone. Why? We have rocks. We don't have big, tall, lovely trees to make things out of. Close together because these cultures were accustomed to kind of a regular warfare for these limited resources. And definitely as these newer cultures, the Apaches and later the Comanches, moved into the area, protection was essential. And a mutual protection of being close together was valuable. There's only one Presidio, there's only one cavalry fort built in the River Valley, and it's right in what would have been downtown San Antonio today, near San Fernando Cathedral. There's still an area down there we call Military Plaza, Plaza de Armas, which I think in a modern context we think of ourselves as Military City USA, but that's really the Spanish military that that plaza is named after. It's the Presidio. And no one of these missions wants to be more than half a day's ride away from that help, and that would be the case in Mission Espada, the farthest mission in the chain, being nearly 12 miles away from that Presidio. By your and I standards jumping in our car, that's a few minutes. By the standards of a mounted unit having to go and render aid, it could be the morning before you got down there. So how big was the threat of being attacked, and who were the biggest threats? The threat comes and goes. So early on, the first impetus to bring for people to join with the Spanish comes from the beginnings of the first waves of the Lipan Apache coming into the region. Hunter-gatherers as well, but they've already been in contact with Spain. They've gained the horse through trade and sometimes theft. And their bands, because of that ability to travel farther, hunt more efficiently, carry more supplies, begin to become larger and larger and larger on the verge of going tribal. This big group comes into the river valley looking for resources and has the physical ability to push these smaller bands out of the way. Not that they're warlike, not that they have this European ideal of seizing land. They're just trying to feed their families. So little disparate bands can't defend themselves against against these larger groups. Uh, Later, 
what we find out that the Apaches are in this region because they're actually kind of in a running conflict with the Comanches that come in force maybe 25 years later. And at that point, we even find Apaches wanting to join the missions for that same level of protection that the other people wanted from the Apaches. Now the Apaches want from the Comanches. Comanches never really participate with the missions in any large numbers. So it's, it's people, it ultimately comes down to people looking for food. That's the, the, the minimalist answer for all of this. I understand raids took place on some of the ranches, but mm-hmm. within the mission walls, were there conflicts? We don't tend to find much in the way of conflict. They came and went with the needs of the environment. So in really harsh times, raids might uptick to get resources that were not being found in the wild versus good rainy seasons where you may have not seen anyone. Then a new influx of people move in, and all of a sudden you have that friction of culture again where you have these raids. So, you know, to put that there, inside the walls, there's not a tremendous amount of record of any kind of upheaval. Tell me a little bit about the supplies and where did they come from? What was the supply chain? Most of everything you needed would have been produced locally. So they're growing cotton, they're raising sheep for wool. They're cutting the cypress tree along the San Antonio River virtually to extinction for lumber. They're uh, quarrying limestone everywhere the river cuts through the land here. Anything that couldn't be made locally would have been brought up on wagon trains from um, present-day Mexico over a river crossing near Eagle Pass, Texas, uh, up the Comino Real de los Tejas, the the Royal Road of Texas, weeks if not months in ox trains cattle uh ox cart trains to be brought up here so you really needed to depend on what you could make here more than anything else and it looks like there was a system of inventory and distributing supplies equally among the missions absolutely absolutely The, the the friars are for lack of a better word remarkable bean counters they they keep copious and just detailed inventories of foodstuffs and tools and the cattle and the sheep and the pigs, they felt, and I think they're right, necessary to, to really keep on top of that so that they could predict shortfalls. Because you know, unlike us, where if we were missing, we go run to the store, you know, that's not an option. You have to have enough and you have to be able to anticipate uh, weather cycles that might limit your growing patterns or uh, influxes of people where all of a sudden you need more supplies than you did the six months previous, uh, they were very frugal in what they did. They tended to keep a lot back, a lot of reserve, so that they were excellent administrators. And it's really kind of a nearly socialist environment where everything belongs to the crown and then is divvied out equally. But by equal, I mean equal according to the caste system. This class of people gets this amount of supplies, but everyone in that level is going to get an equal amount. This level of the cast gets this variety of supplies, but again, at an equal amount. Everything is brought in, you you harvest for the kingdom, and then the kingdom that in turn supplies you with what you need to live. Was the conversion to Christianity easy for the native people? How difficult was it to learn the skills needed to build things they had never even seen? In my next episode, I'll go to Mission Concepcion, 
It's a good spot to explore how the missionaries approached the teaching of religion, as well as the technical skills of creating physical space needed for mission life. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Recently, National Parks Traveler ran a short series of stories on the Colorado River and how its health, or lack of health, Impact Canyonlands National Park and Glen Canyon National Recreation Area in Utah. That series was made possible thanks to a grant from the Water Desk at the University of Colorado. But what is the Water Desk? To answer that question, we reached out to Mitch Tobin, director of the Water Desk at the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado. Thanks for joining us, Mitch. Thank you, Kurt. It's uh, great to be on your show and was really excited to see you publish the series that we funded. Yeah, no, they were um, very interesting stories and, and um, very important stories at the same time, both for the national parks and the, the gateway communities that uh, reside along the Colorado River there. What, what exactly is the Water Desk? I mean, I think a lot of people are have that question in their minds. The Water Desk is about a year old, and we are an effort to strengthen water-related journalism with a focus on the West, um, the American West and the borderlands of Northwest Mexico. Uh, we're based at the University of Colorado in Boulder at something called the Center for Environmental Journalism. And uh, we started up with a grant from the Walton Family Foundation, and our goal is to basically increase the volume, depth, and power of journalism that's connected to Western water issues. Uh, we focus especially on the Colorado River Basin and surrounding areas, and we try to support journalists and water journalism in a variety of ways. We give out grants, one of which went to National Parks Travelers so that you could do the series. 
we also uh, produce some of our own content on our website. We have a growing network of media outlets that uh, share content with us that we uh, republish. And the goal for all of these uh, efforts, um, another one is working with students at the university. Uh, the goal for all of these efforts is to try to get more and better journalism connected to water issues out there and inform the public and policymaker about these critical issues. Now, um, is it always going to be focused around the Colorado River, or do you envision it uh, spreading to other major river corridors in the country? Uh, for starters, we are focused on the Colorado River Basin and um, surrounding areas. <clears throat> the Walton Family Foundation, which uh, gave us the grant to start things out, has a big program on the Colorado River Basin. And so, accordingly, we've focused our efforts on that part of the world. Um, although we do receive money from the foundation, we're editorially independent from them as well as from the university, but their grant does specify that we would work on uh, Western water issues and in particular, the Colorado River Basin. It's quite possible that we could extend our work to other parts of the country if we were able to get uh, additional funding. And really, I think the issues that the Colorado River is facing, things like climate change, population growth, invasive species, those are issues that pretty much um, every river basin in the world is facing. And so we definitely have plenty of uh, work to do just focused on the Colorado River Basin, but it's possible that we could expand to other areas. And we take a somewhat expansive view in the sense that our grants are eligible to fund work that is in any of the seven basin states, even if it's not within the boundaries of the Colorado River Basin, uh, as well as Northwest Mexico. And we do that in part because so much water from the Colorado River Basin is exported beyond the watershed. Even in Boulder, where we're based, um, we get plenty of water from the Colorado River, but we're actually uh, to the east of the continental divide, so not within the basin. Yeah. Now, um, of course, we're talking the Colorado River here. What about some of the um, the saline lakes of the West, um, the Great Salt Lake, um, the Salton Sea, Mono Lake, uh, Lake Abert up in Oregon? Do those fall under your purview? Because certainly they face uh, much the same issues that the Colorado River does in terms of uh, diversions and, um, you know, too many uses for not enough water. Yeah, one of our um, other grantees is actually working on a story about Mono Lake, and we gave out uh, what we call micro-grants, which are up to $1,000 uh, to a journalist, Lindsay Fent, who did a story about the Salton Sea. And so we're definitely interested not only in the main stem of the Colorado River, but all of its tributaries, lakes, groundwater, really any type of water, um, wherever it's found, is fair game as far as we're concerned for the types of journalism that we're supporting. And, and likewise, we, in our grant making and other work, we support water-related journalism that's connected to a whole variety of issues. The interesting thing about water is that it's intertwined and threaded throughout so many other issues. Clearly, there's a big, you know, ecological, environmental story to be told, but also public health, economic development, you know, you really um, can touch on a lot of different issues when you start working on water journalism. Why is such a funding source needed for this sort of journalism today? I mean, 
I, I um, got my journalism degree in the last century when you had uh, vibrant uh, local newspapers and magazines that uh, most would assume would tackle these types of issues. And now here we are in the 21st century and um, nonprofit models are springing up left and right and, and alternative sources of funding. And by alternative, I mean not your advertising dollars are being sought to, to source this journalism. Is it is it that great of a need that uh, your sort of organization has to um, step in? I think so. Um, I was also a newspaper reporter uh, many years ago, starting in 1998, and worked for newspapers in California and then mostly in Arizona. And much of that time, I was covering water issues. But like so many of my colleagues, I had to leave the industry about 15 years ago because there were no jobs left. Um, when my wife and I moved from Tucson, where I'd been a reporter, to the Bay Area, it just wasn't an option for me at that point to continue reporting on water or most any other issue. And so I think over that time, water issues have really come to the fore, and there's a lot more interest uh, among policymakers and among the general public in uh, learning more about the challenges we face for water issues, but at the same time, there have been fewer and fewer reporters who are dedicated to covering water issues. And so the water desk is meant to fill that gap. And so our funding, uh, as I mentioned, we got our founding grant from the Walton Family Foundation. We also recently got another grant from the SD Bechtel Jr. Foundation, which is based in California. So our model is basically at this point using philanthropy and funders uh, to provide the money to support this journalism. And so um, like many nonprofits, you know, we're looking for new ways to uh, support this work because it's clear that the old business models that newspapers and other traditional media outlets had that relied very heavily on advertising, um, those business models are broken and probably broken for good. And so, um, you know, I feel like philanthropy is um, an important piece of the puzzle and, and can really do a lot of great things in terms of supporting journalism. How do you distribute the content? I mean, obviously here at The Traveler, we've got our own publishing model that um, we can use to relay the stories. But as you say, a lot of grants are going out to, to freelancers and whatnot. And so, are you seeing um, the freelancers being able to market their stories to mainstream media, so to speak? Yeah, I think there is a lot of interest in water issues. And so uh, the grant making that we do not only provides funding to media outlets, but also to freelancers. And so we see both of those as really important in terms of trying to advance water-related journalism. And I think I think there's um, this sort of myth or fallacy that water issues aren't quote unquote sexy and that people aren't interested in them. But I think anybody who's ever reported on water issues finds that a lot of readers and viewers are very deeply interested in these issues. And uh, certainly I was able to write many front page stories in a place like Tucson about water issues. And so I think water is just a very visceral issue for people because we need clean water every single day, uh, more or less, in order to survive. And it's a very tangible thing that uh, people wonder about. And although um, a lot of people in this country don't understand where their water comes from or what it takes to get uh, that water to their taps, 
in the back of their minds, they know that it's important and they know that um, making sure that that supply is safe and secure and, and clean is, is really critical. So uh, we're trying to support both uh, traditional media outlets, um, newspapers, magazines, as well as online outlets, television, video, podcasts, and you know, we're also working with freelancers. And so far it seems that uh, the freelance independent journalists that we've worked with have been able to find uh, some you know, really powerful venues for their work. Uh, one of our grants led to the story being published on the Weather Channel website. Another led to a story being published on National Geographic's website. So really big national outlets with a lot of people who they can reach. And so, you know, that's really our goal is to get more and more people thinking about their water supply and the challenges we face, as well as the solutions to those challenges. Now, The Traveler, of course, focused our stories on the, um, the Colorado River and its impacts on national parks in Utah. What other angles are your grantees producing? Uh, so the uh, grants that we gave out last year really covered the gamut in terms of issues. We have people working on uh, energy development, uh, public lands, biodiversity, public health, really a wide variety of different types of water issues. And we're also, I think, really excited that um, we have people working on water issues in six out of the seven states in the Colorado River Basin. The one we're not um, working on right now is Wyoming, um, as well as also having um, some work um, in the borderlands of Northwest Mexico. And so we're funding a variety of different types of media, and we're also funding a variety of different styles of journalism. So, um, you know, some people are pursuing a more explanatory approach. Others are doing more investigative or database type reporting. And we see all of those as important and so, you know, our hope is to try to support a really wide variety and diversity of journalistic approaches, you know, a whole lot of different markets and covering um, a variety of different issues. All right. That's, that's pretty interesting. And it'll certainly be interesting to see the, the additional stories roll out and the different angles that they tackle. Thanks so much for joining us. Mitch Tobin is the director of the Water Desk at the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado. Thank you, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, and if you enjoy daily coverage of the National Parks and Protected Areas that National Parks Traveler brings you, please contribute to our mission with a donation. Where else can you find such wide-ranging coverage focused solely on national parks? If you read the New York Times, you might have seen a provocative column this past week in which the paper's media columnist worried that the Times could be bad for journalism by crowding out other journalistic outlets. Traveler, a 501c3 nonprofit media organization, depends on support from its listeners and readers to provide this coverage. You can find a link for donations at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org.
RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.